Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday Fallout for Season 12, Episode 62, The Pinion Pines Wrongful Convictions. Today, I'm joined by Bob and Janet, and we are here to talk about Bob's episode, where we wrap the season up into one tight package. That's right, and uh, this is the new thing we're doing, where we just start the show and do not have a, a break here, so we're going to get right into it. I want to thank everybody who's joining us on YouTube. we got a very lively YouTube chat going on right there. Uh, do also want to mention for a lot of you, uh, not only those of you that are in the YouTube chat right now, uh, but somebody had asked and a lot of people, normally we've been doing these on Wednesday mornings, uh, recording the show live on YouTube on Wednesdays. We are trying to transition to doing them actually regularly on Tuesday evenings. Uh, so seems like we get more, we get a bigger crowd in here on Tuesday evenings, uh, because more people are off work. Of course we have people all over the world. So People like Valeria, sorry, Valeria, uh, it's going on one in the morning, her time. So, uh, it's not good for her, but, uh, it works well for us, especially as you know, the, uh, when the season wraps up, we're kind of consolidating where I'm going to be doing a lot more, where I'll be doing more of the editing myself and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, that's not great to be filming and doing the podcast in the entire middle of the day on Wednesday. So we're going to try to do it on Tuesday nights so I can edit on Wednesdays, uh, and then move on. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. And of course, there'll be some day. Obviously, we all have schedules, so things bounce around. But just want to let you guys know that. And uh, with that being said, um, Zach, since you gave us a brilliant intro. Well, I think you have one more piece of housekeeping for a podcast you're coming up on. I certainly do. And that's exactly what I was just going to ask you if you wanted to remind me to talk about. Uh, I am going to be on. So when this airs, when you hear this, I think it'll be tomorrow. I believe it airs on Saturday. Uh, but for those of you that are in the live stream right now, um, this Tuesday night, I am recording with Susanna Ryan, who is the DNA expert that's been helping us with the West Memphis 3 case. She also was the expert that came in on our season 12 case. She asked me if I would go on the Citizens Detective podcast where they are breaking down. They have some experts that are going to be breaking down the West Memphis 3 case. She wanted me to come on and talk about my experience with the case. So I'll be doing that tonight. So for those of you that are on YouTube, when this live is over, at 9 p.m. Eastern time, you can go to the Citizens Citizen Detective YouTube channel and watch that live stream. For those of you that are listening to this on Friday, you can listen to that episode, I believe, on Saturday on Citizen Detective. And with that said, the second thing I wanted to say, Zach, to you, which is why I talked to you the first time, um, what did you think about the episode, this, this summary of an episode? 
I really enjoyed having it all bundled and kind of refreshing my memory on everything. I mean, it's been a long, what, what it's been over a year now. Year and a half. Yeah. And, and so to have this nice, this nice package presented to us that kind of bundles it all together is, is really nice. And I also really appreciated the fact that you kind of took the first chunk and presented what was presented at trial. Mm-hmm. And then you took, you came back in the second half and kind of broke everything down on, on why we don't believe that. And man, I, I love this episode. I, I really wish that you had an episode like this for every single season. Yeah. I, and I think I will. This was, I've never done anything like this before. There were a few reasons. To, and one thing I was concerned about, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I'm interested in your take on it too, Janet was, I was a little worried that the, those of you that have been listening the whole season were going to be like, ah, this is redundant. We've heard all of this before. But one of the reasons I wanted to do it is I understand this has been a very long season. There are, there's always people that, you know, you know, maybe start an episode one of the season. And they're like, yeah, I'll catch the next one. And they don't listen. And then there's people that, especially like last summer when we were going through all those interviews that are like, ah, I'm kind of bored with the season and they kind of tap out. So I wanted to create an episode for those folks to say, okay, if you missed all of that, this is what we did this season. And you can still jump in and help now with what, so get to, to summarize everything. And then also for, for people who, in order to get word out about this case, to be able to point people to, here's a link. This case is 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 crazy. It's a wrongful conviction. Here's a link. There's one episode that explains it all. And then lastly, you know, I'm hoping that there are, you know, people connected to the case, family members of victims, and things like that that maybe, you know, haven't listened to the podcast, haven't heard of the or heard about it, and didn't want to listen. Were were they could be directed to say, listen, here is the work that they did. You can listen to it and kind of decide for yourself. And that's why there was a lot of people with a lot of comments and questions that were like, well, what about this? And what about this? And all these, like somebody mentioned, you know, well, we don't know if LeClaire found the business card because there was the news story of, I tried to keep it to just proven facts that we have. This is what we absolutely know did happen. I give you kind of my assessment of what some of that stuff means, uh, but I tried to keep it narrow to that. Janet, what did you think? I thought it was great. And my, and my question for you was going to be, was there a specific or a specific set of reasons why you did it other than just kind of giving somebody a, a, a nice uh, view of it from kind of the 30,000 feet um, and then kind of zeroing in on details. And, and so I'm glad to hear that. I don't know. I, I, I was thinking about that, of course, when you when you brought up, you know, perhaps people that had a relationship to the victims would have this opportunity to not have to go through, quite frankly, some of the really yeah. hard episodes. Um, I thought that was really thoughtful because I know that's something, you know, it's no secret that I get really uncomfortable about that stuff. Um, I know we all feel sensitive about it and want to handle it well. And so giving that one shot of, you know, just listen to this, even if you just listen to this, I thought that was really th- thoughtful so i, I well, loved it i thought it was terrific and and to piggyback off of that i mean it does you know you you just presented an hour and a half episode that you can just send to somebody and say here's the case yeah if you send them the podcast we're we're over 120 hours on this case of audio yeah if you if i if you were to send me something and said here's 120 hours on this case i'd have been like cool see ya i have that so just the other day i was at the uh, our local hardware store I stopped in to buy something and the guy asked me, he's like, Hey, are you the one that does that podcast? My wife told me that, that she saw you walk in, that you do this, this true crime podcast. And he said, what's it called? I want to listen. And I get that a lot. People were like, what's your podcast? I want to listen. And mm-hmm. it was, and at this point in the season, it's so, like, 
I was like, this is the name of the podcast. The case we're on, there are 124 episodes plus bonuses. It's a lot to catch up on, uh, but it was nice because it was it was on Sunday when I was in there. So I was like, tell you what, if you want to get a, a, a taste of what we do, listen to this episode and it'll tell you what we did over the, that whole year. It's great. It's great. I think it did exactly that. Looks like a lot of people in the YouTube chat feel exactly the same. Awesome. Well, and with that said, we've got a lot of people on Facebook that asked a bunch of questions. So let's go ahead and hear those and we'll get right into them. Okay, great. Well, we have a lot of different questions that are pretty specific. Um, I don't know that we have that many general questions or comments um, other than just seeing some really nice feedback on Facebook from people who felt the same way that many of the people in YouTube right now and Zach and I felt, which is that it was a really, really great way of recapping the seasons. We've already covered that, but I want to thank all of those people who weighed in on Facebook. But let's drill down into some of the specific stuff that has come up before. A couple of things are pretty new that have come up uh, from this episode, which is kind of cool since it was a recap episode in a sense. Uh Um, But let's talk about the socks for a second. Uh, let's, Let's just revisit running the socks through a system now. Veronica and Jennifer and a couple other folks uh, wanted to know, can the DNA be run on the socks? And furthermore, this is the Truth and Justice Army. They want to know if there's anything they can do to help facilitate that financially or otherwise. My understanding is, yes, they can be run through CODIS. From those, those DNA profiles can be run through CODIS. That is a process. So the first step in that process is to either get the district attorney to agree to run it through CODIS or to file a motion with the court if they don't agree uh, to see if a judge will order it to be run through CODIS. So those I, I, I don't know what's going on with that process. My communications with the um, with, with Robert's attorney were simply that, you know, we have this DNA. We just had an expert look at it. These are full profiles. It says on there um, the box is checked that it's CODIS ready. Some of it's YSTR and can't. Can't be sent through CODIS, but some of it is not. I don't remember the other term for it, autosomal, I think, um, that can be. So we need, to, we need to find out whose DNA is in stock. I believe they have, they're have they working on that process, but I'm not privy to exactly what they're doing. But uh, certainly if it comes up, I mean, understand that, that these families have spent so much money defending Robert and Christian. And, they, and, and it's, 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 it's not my place to talk about exactly where all that came from and stuff. But, I, but I'll, I'll just say this, like there are people even on the outskirts of the families that have, that, that have made massive sacrifices because remember they were arrested. They were going to trial. They paid huge amounts of money to attorneys for that trial. And then they dropped the case and then they arrested them again. And so they had to do it all over again. So if it gets to the point where, They've approved DNA testing, but we have to pay for it. Absolutely, uh, you know, my offer to to any attorneys who are working in, in cases like this is, you know, my audience is amazing. They're everybody. Everybody has something to contribute, and they're all waiting for their place. And, and as I mentioned before, you know, that could be transcribing episodes. We got a team that is, you know, inserting ad markers right now. People that are digging through case files and there are people that are just like, I, what I have to offer is I have money if you need money to donate. So certainly if that comes up where there is an expense to do that, I will absolutely be putting something, some kind of fundraising effort together to do that. And, and I'm certain that you guys will come through with that. Fantastic. With that being said, Tony does ask, how definitively 
can we say that the SOC DNA is or are the killers? Well, we can't say anything definitively, but I mean, it's it's Occam's razor, right? Her body was picked up and put in a wheelbarrow. Somehow in that struggle, her shoe came off and there's unknown male DNA on the sock where the shoe came off. So one would expect that's a place where you would find the killer's DNA because, you know, that sock came off somehow and she was picked up somehow and there's DNA there. The fact that the fact that it was already compared to Robert and Christian and John and Javier and Jacob and Austin and Ron and Bo, and it was none of theirs is what makes me very, very confident that it is the killer's DNA. Those are the people who you might have, you know, you know, could have shed some skin cells in the house. She could have walked around with her socks on and picked it up. But also, and of course, there's people that make the argument that, well, socks just pick up DNA. It could have come from the factory. It could have this or that. But that that's not what happened here. The 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 volume the 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 fullness of the profiles and the volume of DNA that was found in those socks, it would be from everybody I've talked to that works in DNA, Susanna, Ryan, Erica that we had on the, who helped, who filled in for you one time, Janet, who works with, with DNA. Like that's too much DNA to be tertiary or transfer. Like that had to be directly rubbed off by like somebody grabbed that sock. In all likelihood. Um, so I think that the possibility is very, 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 very high that that is the killer's DNA. Can I say it absolutely is the killer's DNA? I can't say that because we just don't know. We don't have enough information. Lynn says if the current SOC DNA is incomplete for CODIS, can the SOCs be tested using MVAC for a more complete sample? I don't recall if this was ever answered before. Yes, and that is what Susanna Ryan suggested was that we uh, MVAC the, sh- the the shoe, both socks, and the pants for more DNA because you know, all that was done was a swab, which gets very little DNA, just what's right on the surface. Or MBAC will will you know generally, I, you know, I believe they say about two hundred times more DNA can be drawn out from that. So we could get you know even more profiles. We may find out that there is the same DNA as on the pant cuff, as in is on the sock, you know, in other places. Yeah, that that's, was Megan's question. Megan asked if the pant cuff DNA matched the profile of or one of the profiles of the sock DNA. I don't think so. I think the I, I, I again, I have to go back and re- and review that episode, but I believe that that Susanna said that there was th- a total of three male profiles, and that's where the confusion came in with the YSTR and and the um the other type that I can never pronounce correctly. Um, I think like I think one of them was like YSTR, and then two of them weren't, or vice versa. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. Okay, I just want to address Mary, uh, Mary Ellen's post, who um, talks a little bit about this idea of Jacob and Javier being potential alternate suspects that couldn't be presented at trial. You know, you, you bring it up again in this episode, clearly mm-hmm. stating that you're not saying that you think he had something to do with it, that it was really more to show that there could be other options or even reasons or normalcy around turning your cell phone off. But Mary Ellen says yeah. she still sees people on the site, on the Facebook page, um, kind of pointing a finger towards Javi and Jacob. And so Mary Ellen says, well, here's an example. If their if their DNA isn't on the socks, and you feel that the killer's DNA is on the socks, can can we just clear the air and say no one is saying that they are the alternate suspects? They should have been brought up at trial because they killed Becky, etc. I think just some clarity around that would be a nice uh, thing to do. As far as I'm concerned, Javier is absolutely not not a suspect, and that's you know his. His DNA is not on the sock. It's someone else's DNA. He was cleared from that. And his phone records put him down the valley at the time of the murders. Uh, now, there are there still people that have theories of how that could happen? Yeah, there are. But like, if anybody's been on the page and see, usually when those come up, I just had a conversation with somebody um, today or yesterday about that. And I was like, look, I... It, it was a theory, something like it was, it was all pre-planned, that somebody else had the phone... You know, that Javier let somebody else use his phone and they killed him at one time and then went back and then came back. Uh, and, and, it's, and my response is always like, is that possible? Yes, but we don't have, I'm trying to narrow, keep us focused on what do we have evidence of? There's no evidence that that happened. It's just like, like that's how wrongful convictions happen. Is you're just like, okay, let's look, instead of saying, what is the evidence telling us? We're looking at, is there a way to make the evidence fit Javier. And can you come up with a scenario where you can make it fit? Sure, you can. You know, they're, they're, you know, aliens came from outer space. And like, there's, there's always some way you can make somebody, you know, a possibility of them doing it. But we're doing an evidence-based investigation, and the evidence doesn't point to Javier. As far as Jacob's concerned, I, I don't think Jacob's a suspect. He's not as easy to clear as Javier because his phone was off at the same time. So, I can't say for sure his phone, you know, like with Javier, even with with Robert and Christian because of the the the, the voicemail check. You can't say that with with Jacob, um, but I also don't see any evidence that Jacob was involved. And again, I believe the killer's DNA is on the sock. Both of their DNAs, you know, well, neither of them had their DNA on the sock. They were both ruled out. So, in my opinion, they're not suspects. But but I I want to point out too what I had said in the episode. I think. I know it's tough in California. The laws uh, to bring up alternate suspects are pretty tight. But in my opinion, they were overly handcuffed because they were not allowed to even bring up anything that may be construed as suggesting an alternate suspect, which limited them from being able to do, like I mentioned with the with the cell phone data. You know, you weren't able to, you know, you weren't able to point and say, listen. If you think cell phone data or not having a tower connection equals guilt, well, let me show you. Her ex-boyfriend didn't have tower tower connections either. Not to say he's guilty, but it's like, well, did they both do it? Did they do it together? Or is that not necessarily evidence of committing the crime? They weren't able to do that. And I think it's 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 a huge deal 
And that's why it frustrates me when you can't even point towards any other suspect is I've heard this in cases over and over again. Even in this case, there have been discussions along the way where people have said, well, if it wasn't Robert and Christian, then who was it? Just people that we're dealing with that we're talking to. Imagine a jury when you're only able to hear, you're only allowed to hear evidence that points towards the defendants. If you at all in the back of your mind are wondering, well, if not them, who? You don't know that they weren't allowed to tell you anything about who, who else it could have been. Uh, and I just think that's, I think it's, it's incredibly unfair, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, a few different things popped up that relate to different things on the Facebook post that I'm just going to try to grab um, because they're, they just came up. Um, Sally did ask, and I think this is a good question to ask, um, is it possible sector data might have disproved Javi's alibi? Just to hear that from you. No, because we know that he was connected to a tower in the valley. I don't remember the times off the top of my head right now, but I remember I remember looking at every every which way, like, well, could the murders have happened at this point? You know, if we we know Becky's still alive, they're still making phone calls from there at at seven thirty seven. Could could she have been killed at that point? But then we have the fire didn't start until nine forty six, and at nine thirty, Javi's using his phone down in the valley. It doesn't matter which direction he is from the tower. Uh, we see that he's he's made calls. He connected. He completed calls at that time. So it doesn't really matter because the, that the tower he was connected from was so far away from the crime scene. It would have been impossible for him to be at the crime scene when that call was made. Right. Um, I just want to shout out uh, Richard, who, along with Jennifer and Angela and Gareth, are still struggling with what you just brought up uh, about California specifically and just this general idea of not being able to bring up alternate suspects. I feel like we're, there's still a, a, a question, a request out there from some listeners who still feel like they don't quite understand. And I think part of that is that we've leaned into it a little bit and that at a certain point you've said, I'm not an attorney. I just, this isn't my area of expertise. So I think rather than having you explain it again, um, I will just like allow this to be a request for those people who feel like they want more information that maybe at some point we could have a lawyer talk about it a little bit more or something. Yeah. And essentially it's this, you, you have to show evidence that someone else committed a crime in order to make any type of accusation in the court, in the trial. Right. That they committed the crime. Um, I, I think a big problem was they were really focused on Javier and Jacob rather than making it more broad. Uh, and since Javier was alibied, it became that turned into you can't address any alternate suspect. All right. So talking about the crime scene and the point at which in the episode you mentioned, again, this idea of not no one seeing cars. Um, and the yeah. awareness of the neighborhood of all of that. Um, Chris had posted something about, you know, did neighbors see people driving toward the crime scene? Did they see each other when they got to the property? Or was there a discussion about seeing someone going towards the crime scene rather than leaving the crime scene within the neighborhood? And then also just kind of how did neighbors react when you were up for the drive test or when uh, we were up during the day? Um the main difference, of course, being that a house wasn't on fire. But do you want to respond to some of that stuff? Yeah, as far as people seeing, like, like again, no one was asked these questions. As far as did they see, did Barbara Wright see Tim? And well, I mean, for starters, you have like Tim and Jim, El Tim Summerlee and Jim Ellis. 
they saw each other and drove up t- in tandem with Jim right behind Tim going up. Uh, did Barbara Wright see them? We don't know. I mean, she said she knows that Tim was there. She she talked to Tim about it, and, you know, and then you know Randy Paulson saw the commotion and went up there, but they were never specifically asked if they saw cars driving towards the scene. Uh, but one would expect that if there's this horrible crime that was committed, and again, I encourage all of you to go look at a map and you will see there is no, like of everywhere in that neighborhood, their home was in the perfect spot for there never to be any traffic. Like you have Sharon Coleman to the West. If she was trying to get to her house, she would go over to Palm Canyon. Uh, there's a across the street and a little further West from here. There's another log cabin there or house there. Again, they would leave and go to the West and go to Palm Canyon. To the east, you have Jackie Grosjean. She would go to the east and go to Chillin Heights. And then that's it. Then there's a house that you see on the map now that didn't exist then. Then you go all the way down to St. Bernardas or St. Bernard um, Road, and that's where Harpo, who wasn't there, and um, Barbara Wright lived. They came. They would come around Jeroboa that way. No one would ever drive past there. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous stretch for people, and there's, and there's plenty of people – now, the, the people that just are dying for these guys to be guilty to be like, well, nobody noticed. They didn't notice any cars driving there. So how do you know they didn't? You don't think when they saw a fire and a body burning in a wheelbarrow and they find out it was a triple homicide that if they had seen a car driving away that they would say, I saw a car driving away when I got there. It headed this way. It went that way. That's ridiculous. Of course they would say something. They weren't they weren't asked. But so then it comes down to the point I made, which is what evidence is there that a car left? And the answer is none. In practicality, that car would have been reported if anyone saw that car leaving. Now, as far as uh, you know, I I saw you cleaned it up a bit, but I saw the sarcastic nature of the post that 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 came up that was asking, well. Did anybody, what happened when you went and did the drive test? I don't know because we drove up there. We pulled in the driveway. We were there for two minutes and then we drove away. I didn't go knock on any neighbor's doors and ask them what they thought about that. So I don't know what they thought, but I guarantee you people noticed that there was somebody up there late at night, but then we were gone right away. When we were up there during the day, it was daytime. People were at work. It wasn't dark with a fire and a crime being committed, and we were walking around in the public land behind where no houses could even see us, so we didn't have any issue. Now, when I went up there during dusk at one point, there was a neighbor that did immediately come over and want to know what the hell I was doing there. That happened in a previous trip, but not when we were up there during the day. So, I mean, all of this is, in my opinion, a a pathetic attempt to try to convince someone to try to convince themselves that there could have been a car, which should tell you something, right? Like there has to be, there had to have been a car leaving at nine 46 for there to be any remote extreme possibility for these two guys to be involved. And you cannot point to one single shred of evidence that that happened. The best you can do is speculate that, well, maybe they just didn't say anything. They didn't say they saw the cars driving to the scene. So 
maybe, and we know they probably saw those, so that's probably why they didn't say they saw cars leaving the scene. It's ridiculous. Chill wants to, just to come back to the last Javier call that uh, comes up in this episode, Jill says, what was the timeline of the last Javier call? He stated that Becky told him she was getting dressed for the hike, right? What time was this? When did she call him and tell him not to come? I thought the last communication was that she was getting dressed. If Robert had canceled, why did she keep saying she was going on a hike? If you could break down the order of the calls to Robert in relation to the calls to Javier. uh, And then Sarah also asked, that was Jill. Sarah also asked about just wanting the clarification about the where Javi was. Wasn't he in Anza? Um, I, I believe, for, I guess, for that last call. He had gone up to Anza. I think he – so he went to like Anza, and I can't remember the name of that other town up there, and then was heading back. He said that he had gone past the house and was coming back. The call was at 640, and at the, on that 640 call is when he said that Becky said uh, that I'm I'm getting ready for the hike. But you got to look at the – because remember, Javi lied about this at first. At first he said he was just going for a ride. Uh, and that Becky told, and that's when he said Becky told him that uh, she was that Robert was on his way up, and she was getting ready. She was putting her jeans on. And what's interesting is the, and I think I'd pointed this out once before. He describes everything that we know from the body being found at the crime scene later. Like she just got out of the shower. She put on her, I think he said her her jeans and socks and tennis shoes or whatever. Doesn't mention the shirt. It just it's and it could be nothing, but I just found that interesting that we don't know what kind of shirt she was wearing because it completely burned away. But we know she was wearing jeans and he mentions the jeans. And we know she was wearing socks and shoes, he mentions those. Um but that that was at six forty. The call with Robert was at six fourteen. Now there's a lot of variables that we don't know. Uh and I had a long discussion, a, a very productive discussion with somebody on the fan page about this. Um this morning, I think it was, um, when I was supposed to be on the treadmill at the gym. But they were asking, well, the timing doesn't work. Well, if Robert said he wasn't coming because there was going to be another guy there at 614, why does she not tell Javier not to come until 640? And also, why is she telling Javier that Robert's on his way? Well, we're having to take people's words for what Becky said, right? Where we have confluence is Robert says she told him there would be another guy there. Then we have Javier saying, yes, I was going to be there. So th- that's that's confluence, right? Those, those two things jive together. One says there's going to be another guy there, and another guy says, yes, I was going to be there. So those things I t- you can trust. Do I trust that Robert absolutely told her I'm not coming? I don't. Personally, I don't. I don't think that that's – and that's just my opinion. We don't know. I think he was probably a little more ambiguous about it. They're like, uh, I don't know, maybe something like that. I don't know. But I but I'm very confident she did tell him there'd be another guy there. And then and one of the things you have to cons- you have to remember is he never knew that she told Javier not to come. So if you believe that he committed his murders, you believe that he went up there still believing there would be another guy there. Now, the other question is is at 6:40 Javier says she told him, Robert's on his way up. I'm getting dressed ready for the hike. I don't think you should come because it'll be too awkward with Robert being here. Now, we don't know if she actually said that. But assuming she is, let's think about all the variables of what that could mean. Does it mean for sure that she knows Robert's coming up here? 
could it mean that she do- she doesn't want Javier to come, but she doesn't want to tell her friend, her her best friend, don't come because I'm going to try to talk Robert into coming. Maybe she just said he is, and I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying we 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 tend to look at these things like through black and white eyes, looking at timestamps and phone calls, but we got to think about reality. Like what what are the million different versions of that phone call and why she might say so. I can't I can't assume that Robert did say he wasn't going. I can't assume that she did say Robert was coming up. What I can do is look at the actual phone records and I can see what are those telling me? What behaviors are coming out there? So this is what we know. At 6.14 p.m., Robert and Becky talked. We know that. On that call, we have confluence to tell us that she did tell him there would be another guy there. At 6.40 p.m., we can know from Javier's phone records, he didn't go there, and he says on that call that she told him not to go because Robert was coming. And I believe that to an extent because Robert was like, that's why he called Robert. He knew there was a planned hike with Robert, and that's why he called Robert. So we can believe that that happened. But then what do we have? Then Becky, after that call with Javier, Start, I think the next call, it, like that's a 12-minute call. I think it ends at like at like 6.52, something like that. And then or uh 640 to 652. I don't remember how long the call was, but it was a it was a it was a significant call. And then she starts calling Robert. She calls Robert, he doesn't answer. A couple minutes later, she calls Robert again, he doesn't answer. A couple minutes later, she calls Christian, he doesn't answer. She calls I believe a Robert again, Christian again. Christian calls her. And then that's, that's where the hang-up call was. Calls Robert again, calls Robert again. So when we're trying to, looking for confluence, how does that line up in log- logically to you and practically, what would be the reasons for that? 614, whatever that conversation was with Robert, she said there's going to be another guy there. 640, she makes it so there is no other guy there. And then from from six. 53 or 655 Zach's looking up the records right now from then until 737. So for like 40 minutes, she's repeatedly trying to get a hold of Robert. To me, the obvious answer to that is she's now trying to tell him there is not going to be another guy there. Whether that's because he said, oh, there's another guy there. I'm not going. Or he said, oh, there's another guy there. Hmm, I don't know. I'm not sure. And she had the idea that he wasn't maybe coming. There's no way for us to know that. But I can't think of, and I'm open to either one of you guys, if you have thoughts on this, why she would be repeatedly calling them if she thought that there was no problem and they were coming. Any thoughts? No. Well, uh, other than that she would have expected them to be there by then and didn't know why they weren't there yet because it was dark. That also doesn't support them being there going right Right. yeah so 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 that's there there's certainly some ambiguity that you got those calls up yeah what are you looking for uh i can see you oh you got them big enough so yeah the the call to robert was it 640 640 or 614 i mean then Mm -hmm. uh robert calls and then she calls she called jacob somewhere right yeah she called jacob 639 javier Called Becky, it's 640 to 645. 
Um, Becky called Javier, and then at six fifty three. So from six, so it was like what that call ended at six forty five, and eight minutes after she got off the phone. Is that right? Am I looking at the right time? Uh, six fifty three. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So eight minutes after she got off the phone with with Javier, she calls Robert. So that's that's the timing of the calls. Great. I want to read Gareth's uh, comment. He says, one small thing. I'm pretty sure phone batteries back then lasted a lot longer than phone batteries these days due to all the processing that phones do now. Also, the defense did have the full phone records with the sector data, right? They just didn't know that they had it. I guess the state suppressing them, in quotes, feels like too strong a claim given that the defense did have them. It, you're, you're right. It's a, I still, I'm still very comfortable using the word suppressed, um, but it is complicated. Because they did put them in the discovery. So technically they did disclose them. But they also directly told – and after people, we don't know who came up with the stipulation. Yes, we do. The defense cannot stipulate to what – they cannot propose a stipulation to what the state did. The state has to do that. The state told them they did not have those records and then had – and then then filed a stipulation – where they both said they didn't pull those records and it's too late to get them when they were in there the whole time. I've absolutely fault the state and the defense for that. But the state putting up that stipulation instead of saying, because I I don't know. I imagine the conversation goes something like, because of the fact that the defense was harping on this, that the defense was like, we need sector data to know where these guys were at. And the state's like, we don't have it. We never got it. When they absolutely did have it. And like I said, it wasn't, it started off, it's in there and there were arguments that, well, maybe the state didn't know it was in there. Maybe they didn't know. No, it was pulled by one officer. It was signed off on by another officer. It was copied to LeClaire and then LeClaire referenced it in, he he used the information from the sector data in his affidavit for a search warrant. And then the state copied it and put it into discovery. Like they knew it was there in all technically. And you could, you could, you can, you can throw around. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Whatever semantics you want. Technically speaking, documented, they knew they had it and they knew it was in there and they said they didn't have it and were able to snow the defense into believing that. And the defense certainly had the obligation to read the whole case file and find it in there, but they but they missed a lot. They you know the Sharon Coleman stuff we talked about the other day. I've got some stuff that we were just talking about on a Zoom today about Jackie Grosjean or, or Grosjean, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Who's next door? Like there was a lot of stuff that was in there that the defense just missed, and that was one of them. But I I, I still maintain that the state proposing a stipulation saying they didn't do something that they absolutely did in my opinion, still falls under the category of suppression. Understood. 
Sarah, uh, can't remember if this was covered, um, just revisiting how the prosecution was able to just read in the statement from Jeremy Witt. Doesn't it violate the defendant's right to face their accuser? And we know that it has to do with the grand jury or the, the preliminary evidence. Could you just revisit that very quickly for us? So what was what the ruling was, so he pled the fifth because he had other pending charges. And I don't know how they convinced the judge that him having other charges had anything to do with him testifying about this. But that's what they did. And of course, the, 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 the defense raised, well, we need to be able to cross-examine him. And the ruling said, well, you did cross-examine him at the preliminary hearing. This, this testimony that's getting read in includes your cross-examination of him. And so that's how they got, they, they got around that. The difference being that, that between that preliminary hearing and the trial, they did all this background on him and learned all this new stuff and interviewed all these new people that they could impeach him with, but they weren't allowed to because they couldn't cross-examine him. Yeah. Uh, Carla says, I'm confused by the alternate juror. I didn't think alternates were witness to deliberation unless they replaced a juror. So how does she know what the initial vote was? The uh, one of the jurors, I believe she had the foreman, not sure about that, but one of the jurors called her after they finished deliberating because which I can see that I was I was an alternate on a trial and the exact same thing happened where I got a call after they were done to let me know. You know, you get to know these people over the course of a trial. Um, They called me to let me know what happened. uh, And it was the um, one of the jurors called her and told her what went on, why it took 10 days. And where they ultimately landed on things. And then she had immediately from then then sent an email um, out to a page that was that was from the organizers of – or at some point sent an email to the organizers um, trying to advocate for Robert and Christian and said, you know, I was a juror. I don't think they were guilty, uh, but I was the alternate. I didn't get to vote. and But I talked to a juror uh, that did deliberate, and this is what they told me. And then we also have statements from – there was um, – they were like on a message board, like on an online post. I don't know if it's Facebook or where it was at, uh, where the, the foreman of the jury also like commented. And so did she. So did this alternate. Both commented about what they saw uh, on the trial and how they came to the conclusions they came to. And ultimately, it comes down to both well, the same thing, that people were convinced when they compared the cell phone evidence to the statements and determined that they were lying and they didn't match up, which is massive because as we know, they didn't get the complete cell phone data, and and it was completely misrepresented to them at trial. So I know you have a hard out. Uh, I also have some really interesting statements that kind of come up around the idea of alternate suspects, and I know that we haven't truly gone there yet in the case. Um, does it make sense for me to sort of preserve those, and um, we can talk about yeah, it? Um, d- yeah. In the interest of time, we should probably do that because okay. I've got to, I do have to get on that other podcast here in a few minutes. Okay. Well, the only thing, the only one that I will just call out quickly, uh, specifically, is from Vanessa, and Vanessa just points out that um, the evidence about the other nine one one calls um, is still very interesting, and to have that included in this kind of snapshot of the case, and still feel like there are a lot of questions from folks around that. I just wanted to like reassure that we will talk more about that. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely. That's a per- I don't know if that was your final question, but if it isn't, it is now because it's perfect uh, because this week's episode is going to cover exactly that. We're going to cover some alternate suspects. So my plan for this week, I'm still, I'm, I was just telling Zach, I'm still 
scammering around to find all the different data points that I that I want to fit into this episode. But uh, one of the one of the fir- the first thing that's gonna I'm, I'm intending to be in segment one of this week's episode are the nine one one calls to the area that day, uh, along with uh, um, a few other points that I think are are worth mentioning. Um, and I say scammering around because I'm like trying to call just like last attempt to like get people to talk from these uh, from these areas. But you you're going to hear all about the nine one one calls on Sunday. And while you wait, don't forget tomorrow on Saturday to check out the Citizen Detective episode about the West Memphis Three case. Uh, you got to hear from me. You got to hear from Susanna Ryan. And uh, for those of you that are in the YouTube chat right now, in uh, in thirty minutes on the Citizen Detective YouTube channel. Uh, they'll be live streaming. Uh, so with that, Zach, do you got anything to add? I got nothing else. Yeah, for those of Zach's quiet, but he's over there just like like scanning through documents like as we talk the whole time. I'm trying. Uh, good job. So thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, everybody, in the YouTube chat. Uh, we will stick around for a couple minutes with you guys in the YouTube chat. Uh, and we'll talk to you. We've got a big episode coming on Sunday. Uh, we'll talk to you guys all about it next week on the Friday follow-up. See you guys. Bye, guys. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. For all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Barney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been 
truth and justice. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning into Truth and Justice. You are listening. God damn it. It's the only time I went. One time. One time. My bad. <laughs> I, I, it was so good. That was so clean. It was coming in hot. You chose to say ahoy when I was in the room. The opinion pines wrongful convictions. Wrongful convictions. I'll get that one out there. And we are here to talk about Bob's episode where we wrapped, where we wrapped up the season kind of into one, one case, one episode. We wrapped up the season into one episode. I fuck me, right? <laughs> Could you say "wrapped"? Because I really like that. Where where we wrapped the season up into one tight package. <laughs> Sounds like a great place for an ad, but we don't have an ad right now, right? We we do. I know that's all edited out. Fair. Yeah.